Good morning, friends. Good morning, everybody. Hey, Lou, how are you? Good morning. So last time we left off with questions and answers, yes. and we were talking about questions like, does God exist? Mm. Why do we go to a temple? Uh, why do we pray in front of a figure? Uh, what happens to the Atman after death? The difference between intellect and Atman, or intellect, mind, and body. And we were talking about respect for nature and how the Native Americans were so horrified by uh, what they would do compared to what the settlers did when they came, uh, killing vast amount of buffaloes when they only needed one or two. Am right. I right, Luke? Yes, and the other takeaway was, I think, that the Gita doesn't tell you, these teachings don't tell you what to do. Uh, each situation is different. Basically, the idea is to do what's right. Sometimes that involves doing some things that other people tell you are not good to do. That's correct. Yeah. yeah, the Gita doesn't say do this or don't do this. Gita says use your intellect mm -hmm. to decide what is right and what is wrong. And right. we talked about that in the last session. Um, it actually reminds me uh, of uh, something that I heard by Rajiv Malhotra uh, recently. Rajiv Malhotra said that they, they, he talked about the rights of property. Mm -hmm. For instance, he said, you know, when you, uh, um, in the West, we consider property as mine or yours. We put lines across it and say, this is mine, this is yours. Uh, we say, this is my uh, pet, this is my horse, this is my animal, yep. and so on. He says, whereas the Hindu scriptures essentially gave property its own rights. Very interesting concept, yeah. which is true, because as I was talking about the Native Americans, that buffalo, that bison, and that herd of buffalo, each one has its own right. So for you to go and wantonly kill it for no reason at all, uh, you're stepping on the rights of that uh, buffalo, bison, etc. So whereas some countries may say, well, don't do so much fishing because you're not gonna leave enough fish for me at the end, the Gita says, you use, by using your intellect, that much fish as you need to feed yourself for today. Don't just kill fish for the sake of killing. Don't just use up property because you have it. And I think when we talked about the first or second session, when we talked about the fathers of American literature and British literature who were so influenced by the Gita, they took that to heart. and. For instance, uh, living up here in Boston, I went up to Walden Pond yes. to see the hut by the poet. I forget what his name was. Do you know Lou? Uh, Walden Pond, Longfellow, right? Longfellow. Yeah. He, or Emerson. You know, it was Emerson, I believe. Had a small little hut. It, you can't believe it. It's like, you know, uh, 10 feet by 10 feet in the winter, no heater, no bathroom, nothing. Whereas he could have lived in Cambridge, and in fact had had a house over there, gave that up to live in the uh, woods by a pond and wrote some of his best poetry over there on Walden Pond. Respect for nature. Mm -hmm. That's what the, uh, the Gita and the scriptures suggest. Now we talked of <clears throat> three parts, the mind, the body, the intellect, or actually in order would be body, mind, and intellect from the lowest to the highest. All religions have three parts corresponding. 
to the body, mind, and intellect. If you notice that every religion has scriptures, so the scriptures are what we are doing right now. Yeah. We're studying the intellectual component of the religion, right? So we're saying, okay, this is what religion means. Every religion has that. You learn. Now, that may not, that's very good for people who have an intellect that want to know, that are curious, and the intellect is all about knowledge and curiosity and decision-making. Then each religion also has a mythology component. They come up with different stories right. about, uh, in the Hindu religion, there's heroes and demons that you go out. And much of this is symbolic, of course, like we just had a festival of lights where Ram, the king, goes and kills the ten-headed demon. And then everybody celebrates by uh, lighting firecrackers and giving out sweets and wearing, taking off your old clothes and putting on new clothes. And symbolically what that means, so everybody in India celebrates. It's a big function, just like Christmas is in the West. Essentially what that symbol, symbolism refers to is that as an individual, a person who is filled with negative emotions, jealousy, hate, anger, um, lust, etc., gets rid of the 10 facets of his negativity. The 10 controls his five sense organs and the five organs of actions. And the 10-headed demon, Ravan, refers to these desires, senses, etc. Ram gets rid of them and then becomes, in essence, a self-realized person. So he sheds his old personality right. and puts, gets a new one, which is the new clothes that we wear on Diwali. And then everything that comes from him is sweetness. So that's why you distribute sweets to everybody. And there's illumination. So it's all at night. And the night is filled with lights because of this. So really, the lights symbolize enlightenment from ignorance or darkness. So that's the mythology component of religion. This is there in the Christian religion, the uh, Judaic religion, Islamic religion, etc. All the stories of what has happened in the past. People who are more mind-oriented, emotions-oriented, respond rather than to lectures like this. Or, or books, they respond good, well, to um, these kind of mythological stories. Right. So that's what's necessary for them. And devotion or bhakti comes from uh, the mind-oriented people, people who can just sing praises and sing hymns and reach themselves, their inner self through that is what's necessary for them. Now, there are people who are neither intellect-focused nor mind-focused. They're just very body-oriented. For them, each religion says, here's a ritual for you. You say so many Hail Marys. You light so many candles. You do this puja. You do this yagna. You go and you fast for so many days. Those rituals are for the people who are uh, more body-oriented. So those are the three corresponding parts to body, mind, intellect within every religion. Interesting. Now the concept of Heaven, hell, sin, and purgatory. These are all the questions, Lou, that people have been asking me, and I realize that until we sort of put this basics to some kind of question and answer form, we won't be able to go on. So what is sin? 
Sin is the mental repercussions of an action that one has taken. Uh-huh. So I do something bad, for instance, and internally, each one of us has a barometer, a thermometer, a gauge that tells us that we've done something bad mm-hmm. and it bothers us. And that gauge, that conscience is constantly pricking at us to say, you know, and the worse it is that you've done, the more bad you feel. And right. sometimes that can go on for a lifetime and it keeps bugging you, keeps bothering you, etc. So one needs to be cognizant of the fact that whatever you do that is quote unquote bad is going to repercuss to you as a mental um, mental torment, right. which is called sin. So the sin can be not just because you've done something, but also because you've thought something. So many times people, I, I, as a psychiatrist, I've had people come to me and say, doctor, I can't get this thought out of my head. It mm-hmm. bothers me so much. It's killing me. It's killing me. I can't get this thought out of my mind. And that's the sin that he is suffering because of a thought that he might have had uh, about something. Now, let me shift to, before I come back to heaven and hell and purgatory, and continuing on the sin aspect, the concept of a thought, a desire, and an action. So I mentioned before that the engine for desires are the vasanas, the underlying vasanas. So a vasana comes out with first a thought. A thought is not necessarily a desire. So you have a thought of doing something that you shouldn't be doing. That's a thought. If you can push that thought out of your mind and say, I'm not going to think about that again, it helps. But if, the, if you entertain that thought, one thought becomes another, becomes mm-hmm. a third, becomes a fourth. It becomes a stream of thoughts or a torrent. As that stream becomes a bigger river, that becomes a desire. Right. That desire then continues to haunt you. And over lifetimes, that desire becomes bigger and bigger. Those vasanas become bigger. So those desires then lead to an action. So what is the uh, uh, progression from a vasana to a thought, from a thought to a desire, from a desire you act. Right. You, when your act, desire says, I want this, Ultimately, you're going to act on it. Now, when you act on it, what happens is you say, wow, that was good, (laughs) or that was not good enough. Right. Either way, you say, I need to act on it again. If you say it was good, you say, then I need it again. Your mind says, I need it again. So what you do, you go full circle. It adds to your vasanas for the next life, and it adds to your thoughts about wanting to do it again, and it adds to your desires leads to more action. It's a perpetual vicious cycle. You need to keep doing it. But as you keep doing it, fascinatingly, as you keep doing it, the pleasure actually diminishes. So the mind says, eh, it wasn't as good this time, the 15th time as it was the first time. I gotta do it again to make sure that I get it back. (laughs) So you keep doing it. So it actually perpetuates the actions, the thoughts and the desires. So we were talking about heaven and hill. Imagine that you're a smoker. I've never smoked. 
I, I, I shouldn't be asking you if you have or not, Lou. No, but, never, yeah. Uh, yeah, but those people who smoke, I grew up in India where everybody around me used to smoke, and I remember that they couldn't go for a short period of time without a cigarette. And I could see the torment that they were in when they uh, needed to smoke. So if, imagine that they're in a plane with you, and it's a four-hour flight, and this guy's used to smoking every two hours. First two hours, he says, wow, look at this plane. I've never been in a plane before. This is great. He's looking out the window. He likes the service. At the end of the time, when it comes time for a cigarette, what does he do? He says his mind starts making a thought. He says, cigarette. Waits five minutes, cigarette, cigarette. As the, the second hour goes into the third, it says cigarette, 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 cigarette. <laughs> and as the fourth hour comes before landing, he, all he's thinking about is cigarette, 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 cigarette. It's such a noisy atmosphere within his head. Right. So that's where these desires are thought of as being so noisy. You notice that in the Gita, it talks a lot about noise. So. The noises of the desire. So no, desires make, A, a lot of noise and cause a lot of mental disturbance. The, the symbolism in the Gita is for desires to have a lot of noise and to also cause you a lot of discomfort mm -hmm. because of the constant uh, urging to do something about it, to go to action. Right. When you get that desire, get off the plane, and the person says, and now I can light up, oh, lights up, ah, that feels so good. If you ask him, how do you feel right now? He says, I'm in heaven. Yeah. What that means is lack of desires, because he's gotten his cigarette, gives him complete peace of mind. There are no desires. That's the key. Right. And he says, this is so peaceful for me. The noise has stopped. The lawyers have stopped, the desires have gone, so he's in heaven. So going back to what we were talking about before, heaven is not a physical concept in the skies. We know that, we've been all over in, up there. Heaven is a lack of thought and desire and noise. So that's heaven, whereas hell was considered by the scriptures a mental situation within us where we have nothing but constant desires, noise, and guilt. So the sins, which we talked about before, am I, am I losing people here, Luke? No, not at all. No this, is, no, this is actually very enlightening because transferring it to peace of mind, peace of mind is heaven, and, and constantly being harangued by your desires is hell. Yeah. So the sin, which is a mental repercussion of a action that you don't like, causes a lot of noise mm. and a lot of guilt and a lot of torment. And the worst part is that when we die, remember we talked in the last question and answer session about dying and the Atman then being waiting to come back to life, depending on what karmas it has done, which family it can go in. While it's waiting, it's got, it's saddled with its own vasanas and its skills that it acquired in that life, which is right. why when the child comes back to birth from an early age, he can play music or he's a child prodigy. He also comes with his vasanas. And those, while his Atman is waiting to come back, it is tormented by these 
uh, feelings. Yes. Not necessarily. I mean, I don't know the exact mechanism of how that works, but what the people who wrote these scriptures wrote is that that person goes through this guilt at the time, whatever he has. And that is what uh, uh, Christianity refers to as purgatory. Right. right? person is there he says i can go neither to hell nor heaven i'm just stuck here i can't come out but that's for another time so wait a second if if our heaven and hell is actually um our desire hell is our desire is hell is our guilt hell is our sin hell is what's working in our what our mind is throwing at us for noise and heaven is peace that lack of noise then we can control whether we're in heaven and hell this is the whole, this is the big takeaway, isn't it? Yes, but you can't control it by saying I'm not going to feel guilty. No, doesn't work that way. No. By not doing the things that would cause you to feel guilt, then you stop feeling guilty about feeling guilty, and it's just that's more right. noise. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it 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 starts with you can't control your vasanas. Your vasanas are there from a thousand lives before you that have come within you. You can't change that. You can control your thoughts. The minute a thought tells you, you know where that thought is headed. Right. You start entertaining that thought. It comes up with another thought and another thought, and then it becomes a desire. So if you're not and, using your intellect and you're living in your thoughts all the time, if you're living in your mind, and a lot of people are stuck there. They don't understand there's an intellect in another level. They think whatever their mind is telling them is real. That's yeah. right. So it is important to notice your thoughts as they come by and when the thought comes to do something that you know you shouldn't be doing which will cause you guilt push that thought out of your mind don't entertain it it'll lead to another thought and another thought and we'll keep going That's right. and then it'll lead to a desire which will lead to an action which will unfortunately not stop there it just goes right back to the beginning creates more vasanas therefore more thoughts more desires and it becomes a vicious cycle mm -hmm. If there was some satisfaction, there is. I mean, there is satisfaction, but only temporary. I remember interviewing someone about chakras at one point, and uh, we were talking about emotions, and I said to her, because that's where I was at the time, so you can't control your emotions. She goes, wait a second. If you're on the street arguing with your wife, for example, you're on the side of the road arguing with your wife, you're both very angry, and you're going at each other, you can't control that emotion, but what happens if you hear a tire screech and you look down and you can't find your son? Don't your emotions change immediately? You get yeah. out of that anger and you start looking for your son. You both work together and you try to figure out, make sure your son is safe. You can change your emotions. A lot of people don't accept the fact that they could, they're responsible for their emotions. Right. Yeah. Yes. So emotions also, which is your mind, come from your thoughts and your desires and your actions. Mm -hmm. So a lot of how you gauge yourself, how you conduct yourself can determine how your actions are. So, um, let's go to another question, which is going to temples, doing rituals, etc. In the Gita itself, Sage Vyasa wrote about rituals. Sage Vyasa was the same person that wrote the Vedas. In the Vedas, he gave a lot of rituals, and those rituals, by the time people started practicing them, they thought that the way to God, the way to salvation, was by doing the rituals. Mm -hmm. And then in the Gita, he says, listen, don't do these rituals. 
I told you to do the rituals, but that was basically to cleanse yourself, to get yourself in the proper state of mind right. so that you could do meditation and get to the real self within you. But you guys have taken it to an extreme. You're just doing the rituals now right. and nothing else. And that doesn't work. So it's important for people to realize that if the Gita itself says, don't do these rituals, you don't need to do them. Um, and I think stepping out on a limb over here. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> uh, um, some time ago, we spoke about the Gnostic Gospels. Did I talk to you about it, Lou? I seem to remember something about it, but you can refresh yeah. my memory. Yeah, so in the 1940s, some boys in a cave in the Middle East found some scriptures that were written in a language that they didn't understand. They brought it down. To make a long story short, they sold it, and some uh, scholars picked it up and said, this is from a very ancient era. And they then deciphered it and found out that these were scriptures written in the time of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And they said, this must have been written by Jesus' disciples. So they sent it to the Vatican. The Vatican in the 1990s, almost 50 years later, said these are original, authentic papyrus scrolls written by the disciples of Jesus. Mm. I mean, amazing, right? Right. In the 1990s, just 20 plus years ago, you find something that Jesus has written. Basically, what was written in those scrolls was not to go to church, because there were no churches then. Right. Was not to go and give uh, the bishop or the pope anything, because there were no bishops or popes in Jesus's time. Right. But prescription was for the same exact things that we're talking about now, to do good to other people, to be a good person, to help your fellow human beings, to control your desires, all the kind of things that we're talking about. So basically, the teachings of Jesus were the same exact things that we're talking about now, which is, as I talk in this um, these talks, that all self-realized beings are basically the same. They're one and the same. They may have been born a human being, but then when they become self-realized, they become the Brahman, they become Atman, they become self-realized. So once they're self-realized, there's no difference between one self-realized soul and the other, because they're both part of the same Atman. So whether it is Jesus that's prescribing what he's prescribing, or Buddha, or Krishna, they're going to tell you the same thing, which is, to be kind to your fellow human being, fellow uh, living being, be gentle, be more uh, unselfish, do not think of yourself all the time, those kind of things. So where are we? Rituals. We just did rituals. Rituals. Yes. So the rituals and bargaining really doesn't work. That is not at all what Vyasa prescribes, and he says that. Don't do it. Rituals aren't the destination rituals is sometimes the vehicle to get there but just doing the rituals isn't enough right then it just becomes boils down to just bargaining to say if i do this yeah. then give me that kind of thing right so the last thing we'll talk about is karma your current actions and your previous actions in this life and previous lives determine what will happen to you and what you will get in the future 
So it's a cause and effect um, situation mm -hmm. where you do certain things, you're going to get the same exact result and consequence. Mm -hmm. People find that very hard to believe. They say, how do I know that's true? Why should I give up this opportunity when I can do this <laughs> and it'll give me some selfish benefit when I don't know if I'm going to get punished for it or not? You're saying I'm going to, but I don't know that. Right. Read Edgar Cayce's books and talk about uh, karma. Uh, he, when he first got this realization, being a very strong uh, Catholic, he said, I don't believe this. This can't be true. It goes against my religion. But he said, I've got to be honest to what I'm being revealed over here. And so he talked about it. And the examples he gives of how karma continues to repeat itself through all of the people, thousands of people that he uh, brought up, um, is fascinating. Yeah. So we all have a price to pay. It's like a bank balance. You know, you keep putting in money into your right. checking account, savings account. At some point, you're going to reap the benefit. The more you withdraw, you're going to run into a negative uh, balance. I'm, I'm, I'm drawn to dog training as we talk about this because what they tell you with the dog is you have to associate the action with the punishment or the deterrence. Otherwise, if there's too long a space, they don't associate the two. And I think that's what happens with humans with karma because karma isn't always immediate. Karma takes some time, and if people don't see a direct, like they say, that person's a bad person, how come karma is not affecting them? It's going to. You just, yeah. It's not happening right now, but it's going to. That's right. That's yeah. right. Very good point, because a lot of people say, look at this guy who uh, is wealthy and so on. He does nothing but bad. Mm -hmm. and So he's getting the benefits of past good deeds, but he's now using bad, so he will actually pay the price next time right but people don't see it immediately so they don't think it exists because they want immediate gratification in most things karma is a long-term game more often than not isn't it yeah actually you know the game snakes and ladders which i think over here we call it shoots and, and ladders yes right it started off in india as snakes and ladders <laughs> and uh, the game itself was when you do good karma you go up and when you do bad karma, you come down, a snake gather, grabs you, and you come all the way down. <laughs> so that really shows the ups and downs. If you play that game, Chutes and Ladders, you will see you can go all the way up to 99 and come right back down to one with yeah. one snake. Mm -hmm. So um, how much time do we have left? About three and a half minutes. Okay. So basically, I just wanted to say that I think a lot of people find these questions and answers yeah. pretty helpful. Oh, and I, I would it. like you to ask me these questions because only when your questions get uh, answered is when you're going to be able to move on to understand better about future lectures. And again, you can listen to Gautam Jain and Swami Parthasarthi on YouTube uh, and, and their podcasts. And basically what I'm doing is uh, giving you some of that so that you can then go back and listen to this. Um, and, and, and that's it, Lou. We will continue next week with right. chapter three go look for all of your episodes on apple podcasts on facebook on spotify on google podcasts and of course here on facebook facebook is a great place to leave some comments and have some discussions uh, you can leave reviews on the other places we'll also have an email up there so people can email you with questions if they have them from those other sources thank you very much goodbye and see you next time okay.